Life's so complicated. There's just so much to do. There seems to be no earthly way in one day to get through. And so we rise, and as we do, we find our daily fate is knowing that before we start, already we are late. So we scurry, hurry, fret, and move into the day and think, Dear Lord, tomorrow I'll have the time to pray. We run and rush into the world without our armor on, and Satan has a field day before the day is gone. You'd think we'd learn our lesson, but ere the next day starts, we find ourselves so burdened down with all that's on our hearts that we have even less time to do the only thing that to our lives stability and peace and rest can bring. Tomorrow, oh dear God, one of Satan's greatest lies. Tomorrow, it's a trash can in grandiose disguise. Tomorrow's not the time for us to plan to pray. If we're to do the will of God... That day must be today. Prayer. It's the one thing in life that can't wait for tomorrow. And yet how many of us live as though it can? Prayer is the prime essential of the Christian life. It is the one thing Jesus could not do without. It is something the Apostle Paul did without ceasing. It is the one thing that all the greats who have changed the course of spiritual history have in common. William Carey was once rebuked for spending too much time in prayer. You're neglecting your business, they said. His answer was, prayer is my business. Cobbling shoes is a sideline. When William IV of England died, there was a young girl spending the night at the palace. They awakened her and told her she was now the Queen of England. The first thing she did was fall to her knees and ask God to guide her through the years to come. For 64 years, Queen Victoria, as she became known, kept that priority and God kept his word. Fanny Crosby once shared that never, ever did she write a song without praying first. Can you imagine how much time she spent on her knees? She wrote 8,000 songs. And yet in spite of that, she tells the story one day she was writing, but the words just wouldn't come. And suddenly she realized this one time she had forgotten to pray. Suddenly she fell to her knees and asked God to forgive her presumption and to write through her. She arose and she dictated as fast as her assistant could write the words to the song, Jesus, keep me near the cross. Prayer. You and I can live our lives the way most people do, trying to find the time to pray now and then or when the bullets are flying too fast to dodge and we have no choice. But we will never come close to spiritual greatness that way. Spiritual greatness seems reserved for the faithful few to whom prayer is not an addendum to their schedule, but the main event. It was John Wesley's goal to spend at least two hours a day in prayer. Samuel Rutherford rose each day at 3 a.m. to be with God. Think of the David Brainerds dying at 29, Henry Martin at 31, and yet their names stand out in the missionary firmament as the greatest. And it was not their actual labors, it was their lives of prayer that set them apart and the character that prayer produced. Prayer, nothing's harder to do. But nothing we do produces so much satanic opposition. That's the reason. The Apostle Paul knew that, and so he wrote, this letter from Macedonia to far off Ephesus to this young man named Timothy. 
And he determined that he, you couldn't tell a young disciple too often about what was and what wasn't essential in the Christian life. And so these words are etched in the fabric of 1 Timothy and found in the opening verses of chapter 2. It is there that we find our resting place this morning as we attempt to dissect the sense of priority Paul placed on prayer at a time when the sense of urgency seemed to dictate action instead. And so this morning I would like to read for you 1 Timothy chapter 2, the first eight verses. Paul writes these words. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving, and we'll be looking at those four words next time we get together, be made for everyone, for kings, for all those who are in authority, that we may live peaceful, quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good, and it pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. For this purpose I was appointed a herald, an apostle, a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. I want men everywhere, therefore, to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger and without disputing. Well, that's our passage for this week and the next two weeks to come. It seems as though with every word now, Paul is getting closer to the heart of God and Yet at a simple glance, it also appears that he shifted gears quite quickly. Because the question may be going through your mind, how did he get from shipwrecked saints at the end of verse 1 to an exposition on prayer? When to pray, how to pray, why to pray, for whom to pray, what happens when you pray? That's the question. Well, the first few words give us a clue. He hasn't changed subjects. This is not a new issue. This is a continuation of what he has been saying from the beginning of chapter 1. And what he has been saying is, number one, there are problems in the church, verses 3 through 7. Certain men are teaching false doctrines. Number two, there are problems in the world, verses 8 through 11. So uh, the law has been put there to prevent lawbreakers, adulterers, perverts, murderers, terrorists from doing their thing. And thirdly, there are problems in certain Christians' lives. Problems so severe they've blasphemed God and become shipwrecked. Verses 18 through 20. So Paul said, I had to turn them over to Satan to learn their lesson. It's tough stuff. In the process of all this, Paul stops and shares his testimony in verses 12 through 17. He tells about his credentials for preaching the gospel. Before he came to Christ, he was a, a blasphemer, and he was a murderer, and he was a violent man, but he was shown mercy so that, so that God would have a, a perfect illustration, a worse scenario to show to the world what his grace and mercy can do. So as you can see, Paul has painted a somewhat dismal picture in chapter 1 of the challenges facing this young interim pastor named Timothy, whose job, apparently over his objections, it was to tend to this wayward Ephesian church while his spiritual father was off in Macedonia tending to his missionary ventures. Now, Paul knew that Timothy had no chance to win this battle on his own. This, you see, is heavy-duty spiritual warfare. And he was not battling against flesh and blood. 
Only God could handle the problems and the pressures that face this young man and this young church. And so Paul, having stated the problem, decides to state the solution. And he begins, Dear Tim, first of all, pray. Not after you've tried everything you know to do. Not after you've fretted and fumed and worried and gotten out of fellowship. Not after you've called half the city on the telephone and told them what Paul said. No, first of all, pray. And there's the solution in a nutshell to most of our problems, beloved. But it's so simple, we refuse to believe it'll work, and it gives no glory to the flesh, so we try everything else first. Paul begins by pleading with Timothy to pay attention to what he's about to say. Interesting use of words here. In our language, this first word would be pretty much like saying, Tim, if you never listen to anything else I say, listen to this. That's loosely what it would say. Paul was about to unfold here for Timothy a principle that would change his life and the life of that faltering fellowship. He was about to teach Timothy the cardinal rule of spiritual warfare. When in doubt, pray. When not in doubt, pray. Just pray. Now, the first word used here is the word urge, parakaleo. It's a strong exhortation in the form of an entreaty. It literally means to call one near or to call one alongside for the purpose of begging them to go with you. It's a gentle word, but it's a persistent word. Paul knew the decision was Timothy's, but he had to be persistent and help him understand the gravity of the decision. So he urged him with all his heart to listen and to pay attention. The second word is the word then. The word then refers to whatever has gone before. And what it means is, yes, Tim, there are false teachers in the church. What are you going to do about it? Well, first of all, pray. Yes, Tim, there are lawbreakers everywhere threatening the peace of the church. First of all, pray. Oh, that the pastors and elders of churches around the world would memorize the order in which Paul lists the solution to problems. It says, yes, Tim, there are men in the church who have turned from the gospel and shipwrecked their lives. What are you going to do about it? Well, Tim, first of all, pray. Before you do anything else, you pray. In the light of all that's facing you, young man, before you do anything else, you pray. And if we never heard another word Paul spoke to this disciple of his, we ought to hear that one. First of all, pray. So Paul has told Timothy when to pray before he does anything else, and now he tells him for whom to pray. He gives us a glimpse of his personal prayer list. We're going to form one this morning. I want you to get out your paper and pencil, at least in your mind. If you have one, get it out. We're going to start out Uncle Paul's prayer list. First, I want you to write down this word, everyone. That's what Paul just said in this passage. I want you to pray for everyone. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean every Christian is supposed to pray for everyone in the world? No, it doesn't. You say, well, that's a relief. What does it mean? Well, first of all, it means that there are no limits for whom you are to pray. If you were to take your prayer list and mine and look at them, you'd think God told us to pray for our children, our families, our pastors, a few missionaries who happen to impact our lives, and that lady in the hospital who was listed in the church bulletin last week is being sick, right? I don't think that's everyone. What about that child in the tattered clothes you saw outside the grocery store this week? Why do you think God put that child in your path? 
What about that lady who works in the office across the hall that looks so troubled? Why do you think God put you in that office? What about that aunt in New York City who's never come to Christ? What about your ex-boss who was so unjust and so unfair to you? According to Matthew 5.44, you must pray for them. What about that Sunday school teacher in the fifth grade that led you to Christ? What about the kids in the third grade class you taught a year ago? Are you still praying for them by name? What about that guy who lives up the street who's in a wheelchair that you've never met? What about that clerk in the grocery store that so irritates you? Why do you think God has put all of those people in your path, in your basket? Somebody has to pray for them. That's why. Verse 3 says, Because God wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And you're his agent of record. You're the one assigned or one of the ones assigned to those people he puts in your path. All of them. No, you can't pray for all of them all the time. You'll run out of time. But most of us never even write their names down. But if no one had prayed for us, beloved, many of us would still be outside the kingdom waiting. You say, well, how do we know it matters? That's the question. The answer is God would not have told us to do it if it didn't matter. And don't overlook the second aspect of this thought. Paul is reminding us as he says, pray for everyone, for God wants all men to be saved, that this is a universal gospel. It means no one is excluded, no one's too sinful, no one's too rich, no one's too poor, no one's too religious, no one's too irreligious to be saved. The scripture teaches God longs for all men to be saved. And he wants you to pray for all men that he sends across your path. You say, but I don't have time. Beloved, all we have is time. And so long as there is breath within us, we have time to pray. Jesus, if Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us, how can we not have time to pray? The problem is we think of prayer in terms of a specified activity at a specified place at a specified time. Some call it their prayer time. Some call it devotion. Some call it a quiet time. And that's important. But that's only a small beginning. Paul says, pray without ceasing. It means as you start your car, you pray. As you drive, you pray. As you wait for your next appointment, you're praying. When you see someone in need, you stop and you pray. All day long, you stay in an attitude of prayer. That's what praying is. Praying isn't just something you do in a place at a time to get a duty resolved. Prayer is an attitude of the heart that never changes from morning to night, throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout your life. E.M. Bounds, in his book, Purpose of Prayer, wrote this about Stonewall Jackson. He said, Jackson writes about, says about himself, I have so fixed the habit of prayer in my mind. Now imagine this, that never, ever do I raise a glass of water to my lips without asking God's blessing. Never. Never, he said, do I seal an envelope without praying for the person it's going to. Never do I open a letter without praying quietly for the person it's from. Never, he said, do I change classes in my lecture room without praying for everyone that leaves and everyone that enters. Now that's prayer for all men all the time. And Paul said, that's the life I want you to live. There's a second part of his command, and it carries equal billing. He's already told us we're not to limit our prayers to those we love or those we know or those we like. We're to pray only with the limitations God has on who he will save, and there are none. 
But secondly, we're to pray for, never overlook, a certain group of people that are particularly near to the heart of God. And that's the second part of this commandment. We are commanded to pray for all men all the time and to pray especially for kings and all those who are in authority. That's the president, the vice president, the senators, not just the ones you like, not just, you say, just the ones from my state. Well, it doesn't say that. I think it means all of them, especially those over you, the House of Representatives, the judges, the governor, the mayor, the city council, the county commissioners, your boss, your husband, your parents, anyone God has placed over you in any capacity to act as a divine authority in your life, the police force. Now, don't tell me you can't come up with a prayer list. God just did it for you. And it doesn't matter if they're Republicans or Democrats. It doesn't matter if they're liberals or conservatives. It doesn't matter if they're Christian or non-Christian. Because they are in authority, pray for them all the time. It means those in spiritual authority, your pastors, your elders, your teachers, your group leaders in Bible study. The word translated authority in this passage is a Greek word. H-U-P-E-R-O-C-H-E is the way it's spelled. It literally means in a high position elevated. It's the same word used in Greek for a mountain peak. It means anyone over you. Pray for them without stopping. You say, why? Paul knew you'd ask that, so he answered for you in advance. Verse 2, pray for kings and all those in authority that we may live peaceful, quiet lives in godliness and holiness. Now let's look at those words very quickly. The words translated peaceful and quiet, two Greek words that stand for two kinds of peace, peace within, peace without. One means the absence of unnecessary strife from external sources. It is the cessation of hostilities. It's a word used when two warring factions stop. It's freedom from war. It means the absence of frustrating conflicts. Wiest translates it keeping aloof from political agitation. That would have controversial connotations in our day to be sure, but it means you pray that God will touch the hearts of those in authority over you because he desires that all men be saved, number one. And number two, he wants to protect you and your family from unnecessary hostilities. Now, I believe it's not wrong to pray for those in authority over you, according to this passage, with partially selfish motives. I know women who are ashamed because they pray for their husband's salvation, not just because they want him saved, but also because they want the hostility to end. And I'm not sure that's wrong based on this passage. The second word, hesukio, stands for inner peace, the peace of God that rules your heart when it's free from bondage to fear. We are praying for those in authority over us that we may live peaceful, quiet lives and concentrate on the business at hand. The business at hand is seeing to it that all men come to a knowledge of the truth. That's why we're here. And I think the most obvious missing ingredient in the Christian world today is not the absence of Christians involved in causes. The most obvious missing ingredient may be the empty prayer closet. The absence of commitment on the part of the body of Christ to agonize before God so that he might intervene in the moral and political affairs of men so that he in the process may receive all the glory. 
Active involvement is often called for. Make no mistake about it. And it is difficult to do. And if God is calling you to do that, do what God calls you to do in that regard. But beloved, in the final analysis, never forget that the battles ultimately will be won or lost in the heavenlies and the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but spiritual to the pulling down of strongholds. And praying may be the hardest work of all. And it's something everyone can do. It is something everyone is commanded to do. It's easier to be against something our government is doing or isn't doing. It's easier to be against someone or against some evil than it is to fall on your face before God day and night without stopping on behalf of those He in His sovereign wisdom has placed over you in authority, but He told you to do it. So first of all, pray. Pray for those in authority over you that they may be external peace, that there may be inner peace, the ability to accept the sovereignty of God without being frustrated. Paul wants us more for us than that. He wants us to pray for those in authority that we may live peaceable, quiet lives in a certain manner. The way we live those lives ought to be in all godliness and holiness. That's the next two words. And these cover a whole world of goodness. The first represents our attitude toward the authority and sovereignty of God. That's what the first word means. It is a submissive, uncontentious kind of life. The second word represents the outward display of that kind of life as it affects the way we live. Your walk with Christ will be affected by whether or not you peaceably pray for those who are over you without a retaliatory spirit. If those over you are abusing their privilege as leaders, the scripture says, vengeance is mine, I'll take care of that. Your job is to pray for those God has elevated to positions of authority in the world. That's why Paul wanted men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer, verse 8, without anger or disputing. He wanted you to pray in a humble, non-retaliatory spirit. So the command of God through the Apostle Paul to Timothy and to us in the light of all the problems in the church and all the problems in the world and all the problems in the lives of those around us, even those who are shipwrecked, run aground, no longer usable, is to first of all make prayer a way of life. It's to create a life of unbroken communion with God without ever stopping. To make praying for those over us such a natural part of our lives that night and day, night and day, without stopping, we plead before God on their behalf. We do all in our power within the system to elect those who will follow the laws of God, and we do everything in our power to obey the law they enact, whether we like the laws or not. Those are the two commands of Scripture. But most of all, we utilize the power we have, which is the power of prayer. Paul said the first thing you ought to do is pray. And whether we do anything else or not, beloved, usually that's the last thing we try. Just a place to begin. It is a listing of those God has placed over you in this world system. It's at least a start for a prayer list. The president, the vice president, the members of the Supreme Court, the cabinet members, city and county officers, pastors and elders of this church, so you can begin a, a prayer list for those in authority over you. You add to it or change it. I think it should include the leaders of other nations who have an impact on our world. 
whose actions may determine whether we're able to live peaceable and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Our first responsibility is to pray for them for their salvations. You see, that's God, why God told us to pray. He wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of truth. You and I are not here to topple governments, beloved. God does that. We are here to be instruments of God who lay hold on that awesome power that's ours in prayer that can change the course of history. So first we pray, first for their salvation, then for their actions, that God might restrain them from interfering with our ability to live quiet, peaceful lives in all godliness and holiness. And then it's our responsibility to live that kind of life in the world God places us in so that men might be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. But in closing, more than that, I would beg you to do what I need to do, and that's get alone with God this week and stay there until you begin to grasp His perspective of prayer. I believe He may be saying of us what He said of the disciples that day in the garden, couldn't you just watch with me even one hour? We have so much time for activity, most of us, and we have so much temptation to equate activity with productivity that we forget the most honorable calling a Christian has is the magnificent opportunity to stand before the king, clothed in the scarlet robes of the blood of Christ, viewed through his eyes through the lens of the cross as holy, thus possessing the unspeakable right to come boldly to his throne and make known our needs and intercessions prayer. What a privilege. Let's begin this week to pray for everyone. The policeman on the street corner who, according to Paul, has been put there by God to protect us. The judge on the bench whose heart is in the hands of God. The person in, the, in our world who seems so bent on destroying us and deceiving us and using us. Pray for them. For that parent who may have deserted you, for that child who's rebelled and caused you grief, for that self-appointed, self-righteous church member who, who's chosen to be your critic, pray for them. And read the newspapers, beloved. The newspaper is your prayer list. You say it's full of bad news. That's right. Open it up. Pray for that criminal on page one that's on trial for murder, that he'll come to Christ. Pray for that sports hero that's been accused of addiction. Turn to the obituary page and pray for the families of those who have just lost loved ones. That's prayer. Pray for everyone. Everyone God gives you the breath to breathe to pray for. When you wake up tomorrow morning, open your eyes, fall on your knees, and before you do anything else, first of all, pray. And after that, pray some more. And never stop. Pray without ceasing. I urge you, Paul said, first of all, pray. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your admonition, for your authority, for your promise. How many of us, Father, have so many priorities in the Christian life confused? We're so busy doing things we forget. The one thing we're supposed to do is pray. We're so busy fighting your battles, we forget so often the battle is not ours but yours. The battles are won in the heavenlies when Satan and God tangle and the prayers of the saints turn the tide. 
So you've commanded us to pray, to keep on asking, to keep on knocking. And yet, Father, so often we find everything else more important. May at least some of us this morning, Father, take a fresh approach to the priority of prayer and realize what it means to pray for everyone you place in our path, those you've placed in our path so that somebody would pray. May we realize why we're at the job we're at and the place we're at with the, on the block we're on with the people we know and the, because you want us to pray. And may we start today and never cease till you call us home, praying for everyone you place over us in a position of authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. And may all the praise be given to the only one who can receive praise when we pray aright. His name is Jesus. Amen.